Esketuemsa. She says, do you like that? The crowd is going crazy. Richard Chu, are you not entertained? First of all, I've, I listened a little bit to this, the old Cedars Here podcast. The old Cedars Here, Cedars Here, Cedars Here podcast on my way home. Yeah, how long have you been listening to the Cedars Here podcast? I, I, I honestly didn't know what it was, and I Googled Cedars it. Here. Hello, Ryan, this is Jesse Diggins. And I, I just thought it was really cool. He says, Pedal, what do you think of my skate scheme? Well, you need to have the right information. Put your phones down. Oh, kids. hi, is this the editorial department? Well, actually, not quite, last. He's got Klugnet back there. A real Hickory High School story there for Great Britain. Cedars Here. here. Best question I have had from all questions in 10 years. No, and, and if Ryan, you were for sure not listening, but if, if you were, you were, I got your email. Got your email. You are, <laughs> no, you're brilliant. This is like exactly, like right, you hit the nail on the head. He's won 24 of the last 26 that he's been in. No, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that you. And now up to uphill, he's got a hop and he goes. Pellegrino knows it is urgent and he goes after him. The, the mountains. Labo looks like he's taking care of everything though. Could anyone possibly get by him at this point? Pellegrino is going. He's going to try for it. Pellegrino. Pellegrino looks over at Labo. Pellegrino. I will get back to you, and I agree. Put your well, hello everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Cedar Skier Podcast. So glad you could join us here on Shovel Lake Public Radio. And we are at 10,000 feet, Leadville, Colorado. The largest and sorry, excuse me, the second, la- the third, the fourth, the fifth largest and fastest growing Nordic ski specific podcast in all of Lake County. We're so glad you're here today. We just wanted to wrap up what was a pretty exciting World Championships? We got a lot of things to talk about, so I'm just I'm just going to call this show. This is the the recaps of all the recaps that need to be recapped. Leader here on Shovel Lake Public Radio. Let's hop right into it. 50k for the men, 30k classic for the women. What did I see? What did I notice? What were the big themes? Um, and then in the championships as a whole. Actually, maybe start right there because, um, interesting enough, I was going back looking at the winners, all, winners of all the medals um, from the last couple of weeks. And <clears throat> as you can imagine, you know, there were, well, there were 12 individual medals up for grabs. Okay. 12 individual medals up for grabs. On the men's side, 10 of those medals were taken by Norwegians, Jules Chapa took a bronze in the sprint. Remember way back when that happened? And then also <clears throat> we had William Porma coming through with a bronze in the 50K yesterday. So you might be thinking, wow, men's skiing is so boring. Look at how the Norwegians are ruining the sport. Well, if you flip over to the women's side, 12 individual medals up for grabs, nine claimed by Swedish women. Anna Shustikava claims a, si- a silver in the 30K Classic. Then we saw... Astrodor Slynn claim a bronze in the 15-kilometer skiathlon. And finally, Jesse Diggins, of course, taking a gold in the individual start. So for those of you out there who are who are on the argument that apparently the Norwegian men are ruining the sport, um, I guess the metrics would suggest that the women, the Swedish women, are equally as dominant. Now, I would say those are some, those are some facts that aren't quite... 
uh, indicative of the real situation. Me personally, I think the women, the women's field has a perfect blend. We saw it at these world championships, a perfect blend of um, dominance, stars, kind of the evil empire with Sweden, stars across the countries. Henning for Germany is up and coming. You got the Swedes with Parmakowski and Niskanen and some youngsters too, Yo and Sue. The Americans obviously are interesting to watch. Um, for a number of reasons, and we have young stars, veteran stars, Brandon Diggins, the Swedes have stars. There, there's there's a lot going on. France, even Claudel, like it's a great balance of stars and dominance. But also, on any given race, you feel like the podium is pretty up for grabs too. And on the men's side, it's very dominant, very heavy Norwegian. So the Norwegian men are much more dominant than the Swedish women. Okay, don't I, I don't you don't need to send me an email and tell me that you think otherwise okay um i i get it i just wanted to bring that up because i thought that was kind of an interesting stat to point out um so winners and losers from this world championship well actually first we should back up a little bit let's let's talk a little bit about the 30k for the women and then the 50k for the men i thought it was a little bit interesting i'm just going down these this is not in um order of importance really at all it's just kind of my notes watching the show i will say i thought it was a little bit interesting that Kern gets the start. I don't have, people are probably going to think that I have something against Julia Kern after listening to my shows. I really don't. I think she's one of the most promising young athletes on our team and she's really blossomed and improved. I think a couple of years ago, I was maybe harder on Julia Kern because it seemed like she was getting, you know, um, a lot of World Cup looks when her, her performances weren't like insanely stellar. But Regardless, she's improved and blossomed. I just thought it was a little weird. It's like, what what are her chances in this 30K classic? And and maybe like Sophia Laukley gets a chance. She didn't really have a great scaffold that, that was the only thought I thought from a roster move. However, the more I thought about that, I was like, maybe Laukley like went home right after the scaffold because I, I think she's gearing up for NCAAs. So maybe it was kind of the best of both. Like, you know, Laukley didn't have an interest in doing that classic race. But I think that's a little bit weird if that's the case because... You would think if you're Laukley, that 30K Classic in tough conditions could be a potential, you know, for, for a really good result. Uh, one That was the only thing. I think we've talked a little bit about roster decisions. I think generally speaking, I'm really happy with the United States and the decisions they've made. And I think broadly speaking, <laughs> reflecting on these championships as a whole, you got to feel pretty good, actually, if you're an, a United States ski fan. Um, you know, we, we got Jesse Diggins winning the gold that she should have won. We had another bronze in the team sprint. Rosie Brennan delivered some magnificent results. At every women's race, you felt like there was a chance. We had a chance for a medal, almost. You know, I can't actually. I can't. I don't even know. Was there a race where you felt like that was not the case? Uh, we had, the the relay was a disappointment, but nothing. I mean, it's a disappointment because of the expectation was there, and that expectation of getting a medal, I think, is a privilege that they've earned. On the men's side, a little bit less that way however ben ogden makes things spicy and interesting and you know it's too bad hunter wonders actually didn't have that second relay leg the 50k he looked way better than in the relay and you know vice versa it'd have been cool to see how the, how those guys could have gotten into the mix and uh so even though there's not quite as much star power there i thought the guys team were, were more interesting than we were probably 10 years ago in some respects i would think 
Um, still, still some room for improvement, obviously. But I think generally speaking, you know, I was at least interested and intrigued to turn on every morning, every morning, like, let's see what happens today. And that's all you can ask for, I think, if you're an, a U.S. Nordic ski fan. You know, and some of that is, yeah, you're following the international storylines, but some of it's too is like you want to see how our Americans did. Um, hey, actually, can I hop out quick? <laughs> I know I was talking 30K Classic. I get this has been on my mind as a journalist, and it's a broadly speaking coverage, um, a, some a problem I have. Not not really a problem, but something I think that could stand for improvement. I I was a little bit flummoxed by the strategy that Faster Skier took in covering this event with boots on the ground. Um, and I, I don't I don't want to criticize Nat. I, I like Nat. Um, and I think he's he has some some good, really good qualities as a journalist for sure. Like all of us journalists, there's things I think we do better and things we're not as good at, you know, so so whatever. But I like him generally speaking. And he's he's been kind to me, friendly to me, emails back, you know, which is not always the case for everyone at Faster Skier. But um I I thought it was interesting the approach they took because basically their gamers after every event were written by individuals who were not had did not have boots on the ground and they almost never had quotes from athletes or coaches and if they did you know they were they were put in later and they're just the basic quotes that i can get by just signing up for you know the basic media coverage you know rosie brendan now you're on the email list okay here's her thoughts or here's a sound file or whatever um and then nat wrote some really nice pieces one on the Chinese skier, one on the Ukrainian situation, one with about parents being there. But all three of those pieces, let's be completely honest. You could have written those without being in Planitza. You absolutely could have. And I, I'm saying that as someone who has done that exact thing. I have written stories about international sporting events with big time players. And I, I was 2000 miles away. And whether it was like a gamer, a feel good story, a... Uh, you know, kind of a political interest piece, whatever, like the Ukrainian one. Again, all great pieces, but those did not require him to be there. So uh, again, Nat, if you're listening to this, I, I thought you did a great job with your writing. I'm more backing up as like, a, here's how I would have attacked this. Okay, you've got Nat there. The one thing that you can get leverage by having boots on the ground is mixed, mixed zone action. Like Nat should have been... His strategy every day should have been wake up in the morning, get a nice two and a half hour ski in, right? Because that's important. Then you get into some loose fitting clothes. Like you, you're ready to move. You've got your phone charged. And depending on where the media zone is located and what kind of like video, you know, action you can get, you position yourself in an area where you can absorb most of the race. And if that means you're watching it on screen, so be it. You want to know what was happening in the race. So, but you also need to be very close to the mix zone so that the second those athletes are coming across, you are nabbing the podium quotes. Okay. So like in a 50 K, right. You're nabbing the podium quotes and then you're following up with, since you watched the race, you know, kind of like a random inside story, like whether it's beta clay making that breakout or the J Japanese guy trying to close the gap on Holland in the relay, um, you, you or a guy breaking a pole or falling. You want to know, okay, I, I got to go talk to that guy. Like, see, let's get his story. Okay, and then absolutely a 100% must every single event, no questions asked, you have an interview with all four American athletes and the American coaches. I mean, that's like sports coverage 101. 
I mean, I, I cover prep games. It's like, you have to talk to the coach of the team that you're covering. You have to talk to the coach. And if you're on deadline, like I've written many stories where the game ends and five minutes later, my story has to be published and meet that deadline. So you, you're like writing the piece, transcribing immediately. It's like you only have time for the coach, but you get that coach quote. You know, now if you have time following up, you get a coach, you get a couple athletes, you maybe even get an opposing team's athlete or coach. That's all gravy, right? But in a situation like this, he is not trying to meet a deadline. That race is happening in the middle of the day or whatever. Like, you just go berserk. You interview as many people as possible. And now here's the here's the beauty of having multiple people. You've got your individuals back in the U.S. who are writing your gamers. All Nat has to do is hop on Zoom, hop on whatever um, WhatsApp or device he's got, and just start f- sending, shooting the crap out of these audio files back home. Now those guys have 12 files to work with. They've got the podium quotes. They've got the quotes from the random guy who tried to close the gap or broke his pole. And they've got four quotes from all the U.S. athletes, and they know what Coach Wickham and Coach Grover is thinking. That That is basic. Like, I, I was shocked as I was reading the Faster Skier Gamers. I'm like, how is this? Th- this is, we, we don't even know that Nat was there by doing this. We don't even know. And so I thought that was disappointing. And if you're listening, you're like nodding your head going, yes, yes, that is true. Let's start sending some money. Gavin Kench, if you're out there listening to this, let's make a team. One of us gets over there. If you want to go over to play, to Tron, I'm great. I, I told my wife the other day, I'm like, I think we should go to Trondheim. Like, let's start saving up our, our money in the piggy bank right now because that's basically how we live right now. Like, what income, basic income, and it's like, we're desperation, right? But, like, let's start saving up because Trondheim 2025 is going to be lit. And we can go visit Oyvind, and we can hand him my thesis, which is now Leatherband Books. I just got my double pull thesis with Oyvind Sandbach co-authoring with me. And um, I can go deliver it to him. We can visit him. We can hang out with Clabo and we can watch Clabo. And, and if I'm there, I can work for someone. And I will tear the cover off the ball of this covering game because what is going on? Um, now, if if I can only go as an independent, I don't know. I don't know if I could get like press credentials and say I work for cedarskier.com or the Cedarskier podcast. But if they let that fly, okay, and I'm not working for print, this is what I would do. I would do the exact same thing, right? I am in the mix zone. Oh, sorry, I didn't back up. So every day for faster skier, right? Uh, closed circuit to faster skier. Here's some advice, right? <laughs> and sorry, I, I apologize. You have to hear it from a guy that you didn't think had the journalistic ability to like handle writing for you when he was just a desperate, passionate little puppy who just wanted to cover Nordic skiing because he loved it. Um, I think you... After every day of a world championship, you have a gamer that covers the race and you have an American story because basically every single person who is coming to that site, they want to know what happened in the race and they want to know how did we do. So again, my approach of your guy that is boots on the ground, his job is to get as many interviews as possible and he needs to get the podium winners and he needs to get the Americans and needs to get the American coaches. That's not that hard to do. It takes you like 30 minutes max to do that. Then you wander back to your media center, you send off all your files to the guy who's back at home writing the gamer, and you get to work on the American story, you write the American feel side, you post it, two hours later, you're, <laughs> you're well, if you're not, you're getting ready for the Devin Kershaw show, probably, okay, that's what I would, that's what I would have been doing, so I don't know, I thought, I thought kind of wildly inefficient, and again, if Nat Hurts ends up listening to this, look, great stories, I love them, but, but like, you don't. You didn't need to have boots on the ground for a few of those. Maybe the Ukrainian one, like 
And I guess the Jesse Diggins one where he pulled quotes from various people in attendance. Yeah, but like how necessary is that quote too? I don't or that that's even maybe that entire story. That was one where it was like, it kind of feels good as an American fan, know how Jesse Diggins is really impacting others. But like, I don't really need a quote from a random German fan or someone else who's like inspired by it. Um, anyway, good writing. Good writing by Nat. Maybe he needs to come over and join the cedarskier.com team. We work together and flesh things out. I'm not sure. He probably wouldn't want to do that. He thinks we're a rogue organization. Um, I digress. So anyway, if I was in Trondheim though, working the Cedar Skier podcast, then you just collect all your audio files. You create a show just like a major market sports talk show. You know, you're talking about the show and then you go, let's, let's up down and hear what Johannes Klobel actually said. Then you hear the clip, then you talk more. Now, wasn't it interesting that Ivo Niskanen decided to break so late? I wonder what he thought. Let's hop down and hear what he thinks. And then you hear from him. You know, like, again, I, I think that's, uh, if I would have been in person, I would have been collecting those for the Devin Kershaw show. I'm I'm shocked that he didn't he didn't do that. You know, he did he did have some audio files, obviously, because we we took a few of them where I, we heard his voice. We got them from the U.S. ski ski team in previous shows. But anyway, there rant over. Let's get back to the 30k. What did I think? Well, um, first of all, I noted that at 8:05, athletes took their first feed and they took it every 10 minutes for the rest of the race. So. You knew I was going to note that, right? I mean, you have to, right? Uh, they mentioned a lot about hydration in this, and there, it was hot conditions. This this didn't look, both days, did not look like a super fun day to be skiing in some regards. However, um, I think you got to go shorts and a t-shirt, kind of. Like, I was shocked that anyone would be wearing a hat, that anyone was wearing, like, the full-length spandex. Um, I thought that was weird. Like I, Astrid Slynn was one athlete who in the skiathlon did not do that. And some people were saying that that was accidental, but it's like, that's just, that's just normal, smart, you know, body temp regulation strategy. I think in a lot of these races, it, it always amazes me in ski races, um, that veterans of ski races can miss the mark here and overdress. And it's kind of funny because sometimes they underdress in the fum- summer and fall too, you know, um, the, the, the strategy that I'll see in like the cross country running state championships in there in November, like if it's 30 degrees, um, and it, your body's not really acclimated to that. It might actually be of your benefit to wear like a t-shirt under a Jersey, little extra core, core warmth. I was always someone who needed like gloves on my, on my hands. My hands had bad circulation. You know, those things, if you mess that up, your arms tighten up, you can't survive for 30 minutes. Um, but skiing, like, even the alley loop, quick tip for anyone who decides they want to come out and race that race, it is almost always like eight degrees and crisp and sunny, but eight degrees um, at the start of that race. And by the end, it's like 31. I have the last four years worn just my race tights and like my Rosignol top, which is no insulation really. And I do wear my Lillisport gold, not the like thinnest Lillisport race gloves, but they are pretty thin. And typically my, my hands usually are kind of hot at the end of the race, but it, it's, I think a better strategy than maybe going ultra, ultra thin. Cause you, you might actually get really cold at the beginning, but anyway, you, you should, if you're cold for the first 30 minutes, that race, you're probably going to be perfect because it's about a two hour race. And for some people it's three so if you're hot, it, it it will get miserable. There's no escape, no shade. And, you know, anyway, I, that's that's kind of what I reminded of when I was looking at this Planitza. It's like 
there's no protection really here. So I thought more people maybe could have um, chose to clothe themselves differently, but whatever. I think the the feed element, Keegan Randall kept bringing up, you know, it's important to have these fluids and the mixture of carbs and everything. And I think, I think my, I guess my experience at least in races, in races where it's important to kind of stay on top of these things, they brought up a great point, I think, in the men's side, where the idea of going every 10 minutes is you can't really ever let yourself get to empty. That is true. Um, however, in a two-hour race, even in a two, like a two-hour race, if you were to like, your body should have like 2,000 calories worth of carbohydrates to work with. So if you are a well-trained athlete, someone doing like a thousand hours and some of those distance things are done, maybe fasted in the morning or on a light snack or whatever. Like if you just train yourself normally and you eat a high carb diet, like the Kenyan diet, you will bolster your ability to store carbs. I know for a fact that like I'm not storing 2000 calories worth of carbs when I wake up in the morning, if I've carb loaded the night before or just had a normal meal, it's probably more like 3,500. It has to be because I've gone out and done like four, four, four and a half hour, decently hard bikes or, you know, ski sessions and, and not done, not taken anything in and sometimes not even water. So some people might say that latter part of that's maybe the weirder part. And I would, ha- I would tend to agree because the most important thing to balance in these endurance events, in my opinion, is the electrolyte balance. Because if you mess that up, even if you have adequate, you know, energy, your body will, you will feel faint. You will not be able to operate. Like your water is so much more important to your body. Um, than than like energy because you're a normal human living on earth has so much extra energy they can tap into if they really need to so a lot of people when they talk about bonking what is really occurring is they've messed up the electrolyte fluid imbalance and i will actually say this i have also experienced this from experience one of the first the first century road bike ride i did I tried to kind of follow the plan of, okay, make sure you stay on top of your fluids and stay on top of your your fuel and everything. And I, I got to like mile 65, 70, and I felt terrible. And and on the pre, and I had been eating well on this ride. Like I, I bet I took in over 2,000 calories up to that point, which considering like I had a breakfast carb load the night before, like 2000 calories in the ride. It's, there's no way I'm under fueled. Right. And I just remember I was so faint and so out of it and kind of reflecting on it. I was like, I started to look back. It's like, maybe I had kind of had too much salt, too much protein. I wasn't like simple enough with my fuel, you know, instead of going like simple carbs, simple sugars, water, or like a propel, you know, that, that maybe that's what really messed me up. Cause man, I felt terrible the last 20 miles and it was a slog. I almost felt like I was going to faint. And the next century ride that I did, I took a totally opposite approach. I did not eat anything until like 45 miles in. And then from there on out, all I did was I'd eat bananas. I would drink a little bit of pickle juice and then I pounded propel. And I, I honestly think the bananas, it was like, there's your instant carbohydrate energy. You can burn fats, you can burn sugars the pickle juice was like kind of the bolster of electrolytes, making sure I was quite, you know, overtapped on that side. I was not going to make the, I lost too much salt this time around. And then the propel propel, I think is like, it's a magical sports drink. I'm not going to lie that propel propel is like, it's, it's because I think it's the right amount of like the vitamins, electrolytes. It's not quite as sugary as Gatorade, but propel worked really well for me. So 
I don't know if anyone cares about listening to any of this. Maybe you're out there, you're a citizen tracer. I hope I can like impart at least some of my advice. To me, Propel can get you a long way. Propel, bananas, and pickles. Pretty sure I could bike across America with that. As long as every night I was able to have like my 8,000 calorie um, banana smoothie cereal mixture. And, and, but I continue. The U.S. Oh, I put down. U.S. should have had more white in their uniforms. Yeah, what's with this? Sweden, I was looking at this article. Sweden's got white in their uniforms. There's some like tradition back to the 1920s that this happened, that some guy decided to wear white, thin white uh, uniform. And it was basically like the same logic that I just brought up about reflection. It's just going to be a cooler uniform, cooler temperature-wise. And I, 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 yeah, I thought watching this like, why wouldn't everyone have a white-based uniform if you could? You know, and yeah, I think the U.S., like they're always, there are these dark uniforms. It might not look as great. If you had to go to the bathroom in the middle of the race, it could be a disaster. But like white is going to reflect the sun. It just seems super obvious. So yeah, if I'm the coach of any team, I'm always going to make it a little more on the Swedish side than on the darker colored side. One little note there. Camera angles, production. Oh yeah. Hey guys, we like to rip fist, or we don't, but a lot of people like to rip fist about their production. I actually have never done that, like partially because I don't follow the IBU enough to to know, oh wow, look at the contrast. Everyone always says that, that that product is so much better. Um, hey, these world championships, they had drone shots. They had the side-by-sides. I mean, every square inch of that course was covered. I think someone needs to write a note to Davos because when I did that broadcast for that, that was pretty insane. I mean, we had a shot of the stadium and like a shot of the first hill 1.1k later. And like, they would just go back and forth between those two. And I'm like, there is, this is a 5k loop. Like what is going on here? Um, But yeah, I thought that was cool. I thought that was awesome. And I I don't want to take that for granted. You know, I want to be the Christian in me is like, guys, gratitude, contentment. These are virtues. I was very content with the, with like the angles that were chosen, the slow-mos that were there. And speaking of slow-mos, I think this brings a, it's a great time to transition to the Sport Hill slow-mo of the week. So my Sport Hill slow-mo moments, I've been bringing these to you all weekend long. In fact, I had a listener try to correct me on one of my Sport Hill slow-mos because I brought up in the ski avalon that some dude looked like they were wearing classic boots. And this listener, and he shall not be named, <coughs> ski classic super fan. He sent me an email going, what is wrong with you? Are you watching this on like a potato, you know, a screen instead of like a normal iPhone or whatever? Like, yeah, good for you. I know this person has a really nice screen they can watch ski races on. But he's like, he took a screenshot where I said, apparently, I spotted this this classic boot in the ski athlon. He's like, I don't see it. I don't know what you're seeing. So I, I had to go back. I'm like, man, am I going crazy? Maybe I'm taking crazy pills. And I went back, found the shot. No, sure enough, there was a guy with like legit looking classic boots in this gaffon. Now, I think personally, this is probably some prototype Fisher boot, but still, um, it was a slow-mo moment. The slow-mo moment here though, oh yeah, this was great. Let's see, do I have the, oh no, I don't have the time here. You're gonna have to go back and look at this, 30K classic. Tyrtle gets a feed, Tyrtle Wang, from a coach. And then that coach tries to sneak the left hand in to give bib number nine a feed. I'm not sure who that was. It might have been Calvo. The athlete, du- no, Osberg. The athlete ducks down. So Osberg, like, picture this. Tyrtle's getting this feed. The feed slow-mos were great. There's another one coming up too. Um, Gives the feed and, like, his hand is coming back. And he's like, oh, here's another one of my athletes, right? Osberg, he's like, he's reaching out. 
and Osberg like ducks down because she would have been decapitated if she hadn't. So that I just wrote, this was awesome. There's my moment. Um, I know there was a better, another slow-mo moment here. And it's from the guys race. Board Hill slow-mo moment from the guys race. Let's see. Epic. Oh, I did write the timestamp on this. 3419. I believe that's the timestamp of the actual ski and snowboard.live video, not the not of the race. Epic. Coach throws a water bottle across the entire field. <laughs> First of all, it's illegal. Okay. I believe this went to William Porama. I do not know this. I know Porama had some sketch feed exchanges. I mean, we're talking absolutely illegal and the press getting in there and they were talking about it, but this one was awesome. This coach is on the outside. It was, I think by when they came around kind of a sharp turn, a sharp right-hand turn for them. Okay. So picture this, you're looking at the screen and on your right, you can see the coach. He's standing on the sideline. Okay. And it's like four tracks wide. They all make this turn and the athlete to the farthest to your left, he launches a Patrick Mahomes timing route. I mean, this thing was no no hesitation. He just chucks it, and it goes over three athletes' tracks to a guy in at least track number three, maybe track four. I can't remember, but I just remember going, "What on earth just happened?" I mean, the if if you if you gave me like ten opportunities to make the throw that that guy did. I bet I convert three of them, and that's with no other people coming. I mean, the, how he didn't drill someone in the head, like in between that, is beyond me. And he threw, he chucked an entire water bottle. It was amazing. Pass, catch, um, touchdown. I mean, so great Sport Hill slow mo motion. Uh, Sport Hill slow mo. It was crazy. It was crazy. Um, now, third Sport Hill slow mo, gotta, I have to rip. I have to rip Chad and Keegan on the mic because they didn't see this and it made me furious. And you're going to be furious about this as well. 56 minutes, that's the TV screen. This is about 36 minutes into the race. David Norris, the subject, a, a podcast guest, a Cedar Skier podcast guest, subject of my story. Check it out, nordicinsights.com or cedarskier.com. Right now, you can go to cedarskier.com and read the story. David Norris is climbing up the field right he I, I was a little unsure like shaky I, I would say the first 10k of this race I'm like oh man where's Norris oh no you know I kind of made it seem like he was gonna have a chance to be like top 10 top 15 but he's nowhere then he starts pulling out the Dave Norris like this the course is getting tougher and he's climbing up the ranks and right as he is I don't know what place he was when this happened it'd be interesting to ask David Norris how much this affected him he breaks a pole um, he broke his pole and he's like, he's way over on the left side of the screen and you see him dart across to the like coach's side. He's like, Paul, Paul, you know, he's yelling because this is critical, right? He has now fought his way back up to this lead group. And yeah, there was no real injection of pace. So if you want to make this argument that this didn't matter at all, fine, maybe you're right. But at that moment, it seemed super critical because he was trying to position himself clearly to be in the front group here so that when a move was made, he was at least ready to respond. And it was like this broken pole took everything that he had done. It, it kind of eliminated that work. And they didn't, Chad and Keegan must have been talking about structure or some other thing. They, they went on a couple like nice nine or 10 or 15 minute rants about 
um, stuff that's super interesting for Nordic skiers. But I was like, dude, dude, you got you missed that. There was David Norris just broke a pole, like, and he was yelling. And I'm sure everyone in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, at that same moment was like, no, you know, like because he was really having a good race up to that point. Um, he did end up recovering. You know, I don't. I wonder. I wonder how long he had to ski with that like substitute pole because. It sure seemed like at the end of the race and, you know, later on, he had found another matching pole. Um, and, yeah, so there's there's my three Sport Hill slow-mos of the day brought to you by Sport Hill. Sport Hill has been so kind outfitting the Cedar Skier team with some great training apparel. We've been using Sport Hill ever since, and I'm not reading an ad right now. This is just from the heart. I've been using Sport Hill since, uh, ooh, freshman year of college when I started running after I left basketball and yeah when you're growing up in Fargo North Dakota and trying to up your mileage to like the 100 mile 100 mile range guess what you have to run in January and Fargo North Dakota worst weather in the entire world according to weather.com multiple years in a row and guess what Sport Hill came in handy so I've been a Sport Hill believer since then then of course my wife and I working for Eagle Eye got to take a few trips out to Eugene to broadcast USATF events and NCAA track and field events that was super fun but one of the most important treasured memories of our entire marriage and I I don't think I'm speaking you know out of turn here I think Christy would agree going to the Sport Hill sidewalk sale on Agate and 14th, maybe? I don't know. By the ice cream shop where Barack Obama visited, right outside of Hayward Field. And we found some great deals. We met some nice people. Sport Hill is a company that I can get behind. And um, they sent us a bunch of stuff to train with this year, and I love it. Their cross-country ski pants and jacket are awesome, durable. The 3SP material that they have on their pants is it's super dry. Even someone with French onion sweat like myself. I mean, you could wear this thing like 115 days in a row. And then go to church the 116th day. No one's going to notice, okay? I don't think anyone has anyway. They haven't said anything. Audrey, they haven't said anything. Okay. Other notes that we've got going on. I mean, I feel like the lead, we've buried it pretty sufficiently under about 15 feet worth of just nonsense rambling. But let's talk Rosie Brennan. I mean, this entire race, it's going on. And I, I remember thinking to myself... Well, actually, first, what I thought to myself was, is Rosie Brennan a really good classic skier? Eh, she's doing all right. you know. Like, and then I was like, this, these conditions are rough. I think this is going to suit Rosie well. And then before the ski exchange, I remember thinking, wow, Rosie and this group, I'm not sure who was with Rosie at this point. Uh, must have been Calvo and someone else. But when Ebba made, made her move and broke away, there was sort of this chase group. And it was... It was only like two or three athletes. Maybe Niskanen, maybe. Niskanen, Calvo, and Rosie. Um, and they were working together, and they were gapping the other chase group, which included Frida Carlson. And I remember thinking to myself, Rosie looks amazing. And Rosie was even leading out that group at times. But she looked pretty composed. But I remember thinking like, oh, man, I hope they don't go in for a ski exchange. Because, you know, that could really, that can mess things up. It might bring Frida back into the race. Like, they should try to work this for another lap, see if they can, like, create a big gap well you know the decision made across the entire field was ski exchange i guess and maybe that was made beforehand like you know after two laps get new skis but everyone goes in and it totally shook up the race entirely frida got back into that pack and and for me right away i was like i think this is bad like frida has new life and now she's thinking all i gotta do is beat these people 
you know, and I can get a medal. And and I think Frida Carlson in these championships, she did not have the same killer drive that I think she might show in a couple of years. I think we're still going to see a Frida Carlson championship where she like takes three or four golds. But this one, she just hasn't, she's, she's still like trying to get over the tour to ski thing. So yeah, she's, she's running on like 92% maybe or whatever. So anyway, when she got in that, I think she was licking her chops. Like this one is mine, you know? And whereas before it was like a 40, 40 seconds prior, I'm thinking this is going to be Rosie Brennan's day. Um, now all the credit to Brennan, she fights and grits this thing out, which was impressive. Cause I kind of thought at that point when Carl, when Carlson joined back up, I was just kind of waiting for that, gr- that group, like someone Calvo or Carlson to, to blow things up and, you know, leave Brennan in the dust, like with three K to go. That didn't happen. So, that made it really fun. It was a really exciting race. Obviously, incredibly tragic, though. I mean, and and I think you can fill in the blanks as far as, like, why that is, what are the ramifications, you know, here Brendan leaves another world championships, no medals, which is just crazy. And especially, and I know I talked about this on another show, especially with the fact that, like, Julia Kern got a medal from that team sprint, and I kind of feel like Brendan could have done as good a job as Kern did in that team sprint. Um, so just from a resume standpoint, like it would actually actually be kind of an interesting debate. Who do you think had a better world championships, Julia Kern or Rosie Brennan? Because like, if you, if you took away that medal in the team sprint, you know, like just, and just looked at sheer performances across the board, like Brennan was, um, you know, just a fighter again in all of these, she did have some really bad luck. I mean, I guess even the relay, you could look, I think she broke a pole in the relay, right? Or did she fall? I can't remember. I think she, I, th- I thought something happened to Brendan in the four by five K. Um, but yeah, it's like the individual start, the team, the uh, skiathlon, like she's just a workhorse this entire week and has nothing to show for it. And Kern has been kind of the breakout star, I would say, you know, sort of the future. She's sort of the breakout star of the U S team this whole year. So she gets the team sprint start deservedly. I think that was fine. Um, but, but like, she didn't really pull out something extra special in that team sprint. I think what she did was kind of Rosie Brennan could have done the same thing. Um, but speaking of which, speaking of which, I did get an email from a cedarsgear.com listener from Wyoming. His name's David. Um, I don't know if he wants me to read it out. He has full identity, so we will hide it, protect it, right? People, I, I think the Cedars Gear podcast could become one of those things like once you become associated with it. It's like you're blacklisted from the rest of public life. So I don't want to do that to anyone. Um, No, I'm just kidding. He said, I did have one comment about the team sprint, which is that I think the logic of leading hard from the front was to break as much of the field as possible after five laps and try to guarantee the U.S. a medal of some kind. And it worked because there was only the U.S., Sweden, and Norway contending for the final lap. I don't think more strategic skiing would have helped much and could have allowed more teams into the mix for the final lap. No way we're beating Sweden anyway. So, well played, I guess, at least in retrospect. I think I like the logic there. I mean, that's a good point that you're eliminating some of these other teams. My challenge that would be, uh, well, and, and I agree with him too, like, are we really going to beat Sweden? Probably not. Um, but what other teams, like, would you have been afraid of losing to? So, like, let's say you play it strategic and everyone's in the mix. Who cares? I, th- I kind of feel like in this sprint, Sweden's the top dog, and then Norway and the U.S. are kind of the ones you're looking to next, right? I mean, am I missing something? I guess Germany would be the other threat. But 
Germany kind of seems like they rely a little bit on sort of the long play as well. You know, like they're fit, more strength-based skiers, I would I would think. Did they have Henning in that run? Actually, maybe they didn't. I could be speaking out of my butt. Um, so maybe maybe Germany would be enough of a threat. I, I wasn't too worried about like Finland, especially I feel like Kern and Diggins, both of them are better than Johan Sue and was it Parmakoski there with the team sprint? So, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't too concerned about that. So, I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, maybe. But, but then again, we'll come back to that roster move. If that's your strategy, and if you're thinking, hey, let's make sure we get a medal, then I put Rosie Brennan in there. Because she's someone you know, like, is going to for sure survive that kind of strategy. It seems almost like it was a little bit of risk with Kern. Now, again... We are from we are far away. We're not in the meetings. We don't assess these athletes from up close, and that does make a difference. Like maybe if Matt Whitcomb was being totally honest, he would go, "Look, you you don't get it. Like Kern has been really really fit, and in this kind of situation, even physiologically, she's a a, a sure bet. And they, there also might be this element of maybe they feel like, hey, you know, some of Rosie's like mishaps. That's not all on accident that that happens too." Now I get it. It's, it's you could say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Like broken poles, the ski thing in the skiathlon, that's just total bad luck, right? Yeah, to a degree. But in a lot of sports, things like that, they 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 occur to pe- some people more often than others. Like, why has this never happened to Clabo? Well, you can make the argument he's just the cleanest, most pure tactician. You know, he's got everything figured out of anyone. So the chances of him having something random happen are so low whereas maybe there's something that that um brennan does either strategically or in a pack or i don't know like that does open or make her more vulnerable that would that'd be something i think a, a like a true you know if you had soon to be um yohog some of these broadcasters who like they really can see inside the race i i will be the first to admit that i can't see it at that level maybe they would be able to point that out and maybe that's what wickham saw and he goes hey we're going to put current in there. She actually is the best bet for this. You're just flat out wrong about your take. Okay, fine. But anyway, um, yeah, back to the 30K, I guess. That, that was that was hard to watch, you know, because and it was maybe the hardest hardest race, hardest disappointment to endure as a U.S. ski fan. Um, if, if Jesse Diggins gets like a silver medal in that 10K individual, no one's really crying over that. Like that field that she had to beat was so so stacked you could you could in one hand hold the idea that she is the favorite diggins is to win that so it would be a shame if she didn't but on the other hand you could go yeah but if frida carlson or emma anderson beats her no love lost there that's still an impressive performance now lo and behold diggins goes and wins anyway so we don't have that problem but i'm just saying if diggins had had something go wrong in that 10k that's not as tragic as rosie brennan getting a, almost a fourth but a fifth in a 30k classic so that was the roughest, roughest moment for me to watch anyway. Um, let's see. <laughs> I typed in some thoughts as Ebba's going in for the ski change. What? I thought that was weird. But I guess the rest of the field did too. That was I thought that was strange. Like, it was as if she knew they were going to do that. Um, isn't it interesting that Brendan, I think, came out and said, hey, look, my new skis weren't really that much better. They might have even been slower than my um, other ones. Like, what if... What if Eb Anderson goes for that ski change and like Niskanen just goes, screw it. She stopped. My skis are fine. I'm going to just take a risk here. That's, that's kind of a ballsy move. I think I would have made, even if I'm like a Brent, I just would have been like, 
hey, these skis are working. Like, if your skis are trash, fine. And here's the other thing. Let's say you take off and everyone else behind you switches skis. Okay, so now they catch back up to you, what, 2K down the line because your skis are terrible and theirs are amazing? Don't you think you could survive for the next, like, 4K and, you know, cut your losses and then switch skis out then? Like, at least you've now, you, you put yourself in a position that was going for it. I mean, I guess you could say that's just way too risky. But if, if your skis were working all right, I feel like I mean, we just would have gone, gone with it. Because it definitely didn't seem like one of those where the skis really changed much. Now, I will say one of the advantages of beaver snot is that it doesn't stick when when you you noticed as they were making that ski exchange, that clister, it, it gets hard and firm and people were like tripping up getting into their skis in the ski exchange. But Beaver Snot, Cedar Skier Wax Lines, you can order it now. Beaver Snot, $479 for one small canister of grip wax. It's the best grip wax that you will ever use, organically produced, um, cage-free raised. Ajay's looking at me with the cue cards. Cage-free raised beaver, real um, organically extracted. What does that mean? Organically extracted snot? I need to look over these ads before you give them to me. It's not even a real product. Okay. Well, whatever. Ajay back safely. We flew her back from a FedEx. We're happy to have her back. She's already back at it again. Um, went out for a nice ski today. Leadville. Mineral belt groomed. CMC groomed. Doesn't get much better than that. Take advantage. Great weather. Um, continuing. I think that's enough on the women's race. Let's go to the men's 50K. Obviously, the big story here, Porma gets third. Paul Goldberg gets first. And our man, the myth, the legend, Johannes Husflet-Klabo, gets a silver medal. And there's just all sorts of questions that you have to you have to raise here. Here's my my initial take as I was watching them. First of all, my heart was crushed for Johannes. I'm I'm a big Johannes fan now, and without Bolshinov there, <laughs> like Bolshinov was my kin, right? He we, he and I are one kind of the stoic Russian. Let's log 1,400 hours this year, kind of a guy. Um, without Bolshinov, I have to kind of go over to Klaboy. When they're both when they were both there, it was like I liked I loved both of them. I love the rivalry. I miss it. Just I miss it so much. I really want Bolshinov back. Um, in fact, I kind of think if I was another country, I would maybe see if I could get bold enough to like come to my country. Maybe Fist should be doing this, actually, writing those under the, you know, sneaky letters to some of the good Russian athletes and going, have you ever thought about living in Quebec? You know, and like pointing them to some other country. <laughs> what would Italy be like? I mean, I, can you imagine? What would be the country that Bolshinov, can you imagine him the least in? Actually, you know what would be amazing? Bolshinov moves to Sweden. Bolsh- or Finland. Bolshinov and Niskanen in that relay. Oh, let's just imagine that for a minute. The Norwegians haven't lost a 4x10K relay in how many years? Like 400? Ajay's trying to look that up. It's it's insane. It's a great streak. But can you imagine if Bolshinov and Niskanen team up on the Finnish team? And you put Bolshinov as the anchor. So Niskanen can do, he can go berserk on that um, classic leg, get the junior Antola there on the on leg number three, let him mix it up, see what he can do, and then Bolshinov cleans it up. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that, you talk about drama. You heard it here first. Great ideas. Bolshinov could move to, um, to Ruka. Okay. Anyway. Yeah, I felt bad for Klabo. A brilliant race by Goldberg. 
here's my one cedar skier insight. I'm not sure I've heard from anyone, and I'm wondering if this is true. But I I'm too lazy to to verify this. So if someone wants to go back and look at the entire video, they should see this. Goldberg, at the end, decides to get out of the tracks. Okay, now, is that a lucky move, or is this a move that he calculated after seven laps going? Okay. I am noticing that these tracks are not going to be tolerable for like the kick that I want to unleash. So the second on that last lap, I must be on the inside and go outside the tracks because it was so intentional, you know, that he was out of the tracks. And the crazy thing is, is Klabo was not out of the tracks. These are the things that Klabo never misses. You know, like if, if it was truly a tactical thing, that Goldberg knew I have to be on the inside and I have to be outside the tracks to make this happen. If that's actually like a strategy thing, how did Klabo miss that? You know, you get seven laps through and you'd be thinking at least on laps like two and three and four, that's where you got to make that game plan. Cause you know, okay, like in the finish, it's going to come through. How are the tracks doing? How are they setting up? Where do I need to be? You've obviously kind of decided this to some degree, like the night before, or two nights before or whatever, but even more, there, there's got to be some, I would think, in-race decisions because you never really know how that track's going to hold up, what the speed of the race is going to be like, and et cetera. But yeah, like my initial thought was watching it, yeah, Klabo just did not have the spark. And I actually was like, I wonder if that hamstring thing, you know, I tried to think back, have we really seen an explosive Klabo? I think the answer to that this year is not entirely. He has not blown the doors off of people in the way he did three years ago, pre-hamstring thing. Like, I, I just, I do truly believe that, like, he he cannot go into us the special gear that he could. Still very fast. Obviously has had some good sprint uphill, like, kicks. But I distinctly remember one of those kicks at least covering, and I can't remember exactly which one it was. It was, maybe it was even the opener, like Ruka, where he just, he did not have to go Tarentev. He did not have to take down a Tarentev-type athlete. And so I'm the jury's still out for me anyway on whether or not that is a part of it here, that like he really isn't as good of a, um, doesn't have as much explosiveness as he always did because of the hamstring, and he's made up for it. He's made up for it with just better strategic skiing in the sprints. I mean, in this sprint at the World Championships, he like, you know, basically, he could have no-polled and just classic stride his way into the finish. He, he did not have to Klabo step at all. And this hill wasn't really steep enough for the Klabo step. And I, I do wonder if Klabo was thinking to himself, like if it came to a, almost a shock to him when he saw Goldberg start to run, he was like, wait a minute. Running's not going to be faster here. Like, it, that's almost what I felt like is either one, Klabo was shocked. And he goes, oh, crap, I should be, I should have been running too. What was I thinking? Okay, either that happened. Or number two, he actually was just so dead. He was just resigned. He was like, you know what? That 50K took so much out of me. I, I, didn't, I didn't have any response. There was no response. That's the kind of angle he's at least taking it to the media, but I don't think that's necessarily means much. But he would say, hey, man, that was a tough race. Like, I didn't have it at the end. I gave it my best. I'm happy with silver, blah, blah, blah. So that, But that could be part of it. You know, it wasn't exactly enough of a jog and kick that Klabo could just eat people up. Um, and then the third thing is his hamstring is not all there. 
So he knew he was limited. He may have even knew he needed to be sprint running that, but he just simply couldn't because he's like, at the end of that 50K and all the striding that's happening, like I, I might like pop something, you know? And I think some people, people, people are tricked into thinking because he's won so many sprints this year that he is as sharp as he always has been. I don't, I just don't know. And, and it's hard. I mean, his hamstring was damaged. Like he had to take a lot of time off. So, and hamstrings are tricky. They are one of the most finicky injuries to come back from. It's, it, I, I, in fact, I can't even really think of an athlete who relied on that sort of top end explosiveness that hadn't ha- a hamstring issue and, and came a hundred percent back. Like Randy Moss had some hamstring issues with the Vikings and he came back and was still the best receiver in the league by a mile, but he, even he wasn't the same Randy Moss. Um, so anyway, I think that's, that's kind of an interesting take. Now, another thing, as we reflect back on the entire championships, you have to kind of start to wonder who was the, who was the man of this championships? Um, you got Kruger there with his shiny three golds. He doesn't get the start in the 50k. I have no problem with that. I actually think that was a that was the right call by the Norwegians. I know Devin Kershaw is like, no, you gotta start him. He's hot right now. But Kruger might I think Kruger might have even said, no, like I I don't I don't have a chance in this 50k. It's either gonna be Evo Niskanen drilling from the front, and I can't stay with that, or it's gonna be Klabo and Goldberg sprinting by everyone at the end, and I can't do that either. No, I'll save myself. I'll do Holman Cullen next weekend. Now, if he's not in the Holman Cullen one, then I'm I'm totally I'm flummoxed again. Flummoxed, the word of the day, um, because he's but he's a good skate skier and he's a good distance skate skier. This is his chance to take down Holman Cullen. He's the Linschke guy. He's from he's the Oslo guy. That would be a huge event. And and talk about the glory too. Like if Kruger goes three for three at Worlds and then comes to Holman Cullen and destroys everyone in the 50k. I mean that guy. He is going to have parades in Oslo for the next 300 days. So, brilliant move by Kruger. But anyway, and, 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 and I like to move up on the staff too. Even Nyanget being in there. Like, the guy, that guy won Holman Cullen last year in the Classic. He's a good distance 50. He's like a 50K specialist, basically. So, I liked that. I like having Diedrich in there. He's been having great performances, and he's looked sharp. And yeah, gosh, he deserves the start. for And he's fresh. He's fresh. Like, that alone. In fact, you could almost say in a 50K Classic, like, him and Kruger, what's the difference? They're both going to be really fit guys who are going to rely on fitness. And Tonsa's probably a better Classic skier. And and definitely that's his thing. So let him have it, you know? Anyone who's given the Norwegian staff a hard time for that is just stupid. Like, I, I, I get the legendary thing, but Kruger's going to go out there. He would have gotten sixth, okay? He, he would not have gotten a medal and it would have just been a dumb thing. So I think that's cool. But but Kruger's three for three is kind of intriguing. And then let's look at this too. Paul Goldberg leaves here with three golds and one silver in the individual sprint. So all of a sudden he's got he had four medals here. Now Klabo, he's still he, Klabo's got three golds, a silver in the scaffolon, and a silver in the mass start. Is that is that a better performance than Nortug getting four golds at the world championships that he did that? Actually, just let me look up Petter Nortug. Let's uh, let's compare a little bit. Petter Nortug is 37 years old, right? By the way, he, he should have been skiing competitively for the last four years. Like, the fact that Petter Nortug 
is only 37. It seems like it was another millennium that he was like relevant. It's kind of sad. To me, that almost tarnishes his greatness. To a degree, it's hard to overlook. You know, like he he could have won more medals, but he he just he has the showmanship side of him. That was that was ultimately the lack of discipline side. Like, I don't know. He's your classic, like the big time jock that's larger than life. Um, can those guys be the greatest of all time? Yeah, sometimes. But like the real greatest of all times are like the Tom Brady's that accrue records. They, they break every record. They win all the time and they win for as long as possible and by golly Tom Brady went to college for five years that blows my mind he literally could have been in the NFL for like 27 years if he was Patrick Mahomes you know type now so I don't know I could I could wonder about that but let's take a look at Nortog Nortog at the world championships okay so he won four golds in 2015 and then it got 11th in the skiathlon that year and 62nd in the individual start <laughs> To me, like, I mean, so he wins the sprint, the relay, and the team sprint, just like Klabo did. In the 50K mass start, Klabo gets a silver, Nortug gets a gold, but Nortug outsprints the likes of Lucas Bauer, Johan Olsen, Maxime Vlegzenin. I can't say his name right. Diedrich Tonsev was in that race back in the day. He was a top 10 athlete, even way back then. Well, it was only 2015. Um, versus the field that Klabo had. I mean, I think if you're Nortug, you take every chance you can right now to rip Klabo because to some degree, this was Klabo's for the taking. But on another angle, you got to go. Goldberg is no slouch in the sprint. So, like, this was not going to be handed easily, and Goldberg was hungry, had a lot to fight for there. Also, Klabo should already have a 50K gold from 2021. Um, I don't know. But, but yeah, then you'll get the skiathlon, and the fact that Norte gets 11th, Klabo gets a silver there, and the 50K individual where Klabo gets a fourth. If Klabo could have gotten a medal there and had come away here with six medals, I think you look at that and you go, that's the best male performance at a world championships. Right now, it seems like there's a little bit of room for debate because Klabo, he wasn't perfect like Nortug was, right? Nortug got four golds. But but again, Nortug wasn't really perfect either. He, Nortug did all six races and he got a 62nd and an 11th. He was completely irrelevant. Every single time Klabo strapped it on, we were like, is he going to win? And, and he almost did. You know, almost all these races, you, you could say that. And... Uh, yeah, it's too bad. It's too bad. That's I think the skiathlon, honestly, if he would have taken the gold there, I think Klabo is the type of athlete that could have given an extra oomph. I don't like saying this about him, but I think it's true that like that would have been the extra oomph to get him the gold in the 50K. Because if Klabo is in this home stretch with the chance to get five golds, there is no way Paul Goldberg takes him down. None. Like, I think Klabo was sort of fighting a little bit of the mental enemies of this hasn't quite been the championship that I envisioned. We're not going for the perfect six golds thing or anything. We're not even going to get five golds. And that that can affect an athlete. Like athletes can enter another gear when greatness is really on the line. And Klabo for sure would be the type who would do that. So I do ultimately think this world championships is going to be great for the sport because having a hungry Johannes Klabo is great for the sport. If Klabo wins six golds here, who knows what happens? Maybe he pulls a, a Michael Jordan and like walks away. You never know, right? But 
Um, at a very at a bare minimum, he's not as hungry going into Trondheim. I mean, right now, just look, think of your club. I, I guarantee he's like the kind of guy who is furious about these world championships, and he he is going to be so hungry to make amends in Trondheim. And I think like when you start picturing the showdown that's going to go down, and it's probably going to be harder. He's going to have the Russians there, but he is going to want to go do something special in Trondheim. You know, and it's it's gonna be hard. Like I think the, the the beautiful Cinderella ending is like him getting five golds in Trondheim, and I think it's definitely possible, and maybe even a six gold thing. But man, you are starting to stretch it now because you're also gonna have to deal with a hungry Alexander Bolshinov who just had part of his legacy ripped out here. You know, Bolshinov is got to be in the conversation as far as global medals go. Um, he's way up there, actually. Let's look. So global medals. Nortug has 20. He's got four from the Olympics and 16 from world championships. And Bolshinov. How many does he have? Bolshinov has nine medals from the Olympic Games. My gosh. I mean, if you're Bolshinov, don't you argue against Nortug? Like, dude, you're not the boss here. I have three golds, four silvers, and two bronzes. Bolshinov had five medals at the last Olympics. Three golds. Jeez. So nine Olympic medals and eight world championship medals. So Bolshinov has 17 global medals. You think he could have gotten three of those? Yes, I think so. I think he would have passed Petr Nortug for the most global medals. Is that the most of any male? Probably is, right? I don't know. Bjorn Dali would be the other guy. Let's see what Diali's got. Did I just say Diali? Diali. Bjorn Dolly, like the soundbite we've got. Bjorn Dolly's only 55. I mean, Andres Ackland is out there. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to try and make that comparison. Let's see what he's got. Ooh, Dolly has 12 Olympic medals, and eight of them are gold. That is pretty, that's pretty special. That is pretty special. World Championships, he's got 17 medals. Oh, gosh. So Dolly's got the most by a lot. I guess I should have known that. 29 global medals oh man poor Bolshinov though that's gonna it's gonna be critical man it's gonna be critical to not have that by the way world championship relays I'm looking right here 1999 was the last time the Norwegians must have uh lost because it says here that they were a silver with Dolly but they won a bunch of golds before that all the way back to 1991 we should look up the record the Norwegians four by ten at world championships on the men's side it's pretty it's pretty stellar um is that all I got here? What do I got here? Um, oh, I did like one of the discussion points on the TV in many of the uh, long rambling dissertations that we heard from Keegan and Chad. One of them was about NCAA running and World Cup skiing. And they were talking about Diedrich and how he, you know, went for the world championships in cross country, tried to do the national team thing in running and then also skiing. Um, and... Yeah, I thought, I thought that was kind of interesting how they brought that up on the U.S. You know, some coaches aren't as open to that and receptive to it. Um, I mean, I think, you know, my, my, my bent there is, um, you know, cross country running and track and field at the collegiate level that, that is one of the most beautiful collegiate sports there is maybe the most beautiful. And I say that as someone honestly, who wanted desperately more than nothing else to play college basketball. I, I wanted nothing to do, um, you know, growing up my entire life with like a collegiate running team or track team, even with the overwhelming influence from my parents or my older brother that like how great it was. And I'm so thankful I got that chance to be on a track and cross country team. And 
even in my one year on the EISA, you know, coaching and Umpy and kind of witnessing what that looked like, I will say that 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 family feel and a collegiate ski team, especially on the East Coast, I think that's actually the East Coast, Eastern Coast is different than every other conference. And it might be maybe the most special because of the nature of the schedule, the carnival system, the training camps, blah, blah, blah. Even that isn't, it's not the same. It's not the same as a, maybe I'll just say that. I shouldn't say it's better or worse. I should just say it's not the same. Not the same as if you're a, a distance runner and you run <laughs> 11 months of the year. And so like every week, all fall, you're with your team and you're you're going to meets and every day you're training, obviously. <coughs> <coughs> And then all winter indoor track and all spring outdoor track. Um, I mean, you are really close. And and there's a there's an element, at least in the Midwest, for me, and the, the, the small puny Division three ranks that was so special of having it be so mundane. No one on our team was, I mean, I should say it this way, everyone on our team was going to the same meets every weekend. You know, it didn't matter how good you were. Was, everyone's going to the St. John's invite this Saturday. Everyone's going to Jamestown next Saturday. Um, there was some special, the, the big carrot out there, you know, maybe you're good enough. You get to go to Drake with a group of five athletes or, or you maybe get to compete out in California, but that never happened in my time for a distance runner. Um, and it happens all the time, kind of now in D2, even D3, especially D1. I mean, D1, those kids aren't even like going to class, but the, the biggest thing I think that I benefited from and that I appreciate is, is that experience D3 being on campus, you're eating with your buddies. You're eating with other kids at school. You're going to classes every day. You're you're practicing and training twice a day, and you are, you know, going to all the same meets. And in skiing, unfortunately, there's so much of this nature that like the better you get, the more whacked out and irregular your schedule becomes. You're flying to Finland for this. You're flying to World Juniors. You're flying to U23s. You're getting called up for the World Cup for a month. I mean, you're. <laughs> How many times has like a Novi McCabe sat in a just regular classroom? I I honestly wonder that, and I I mean I don't see that demeaning to Novi. Obviously, she's one of my favorite athletes, but that's one thing I feel like is sad for some of these athletes is is like their actual college experience. And actually, kudos to Novi for kind of going. Look, I got named to the world championship team. I want to do the college thing, and I think that's kind of smart, almost in some ways. That even for no other reason, maybe just a life experience decision, smart. It might not even be the best thing for a career, but who cares? Like she can say that she knows what it's like to do the college thing, at least for a skier. But even that college thing for a skier on the West Coast, those those kids are flying out to like Alaska and Utah and Montana State. Like they're going all over the place. And I mean, yeah, how often are University and Denver kids in class and just going through the mundane five days a week practices? I mean, that kind of stuff, it sounds maybe cliche, but that kind of stuff builds character. And it builds a level of discipline that is really valuable when the real world slams at you at your when you're 22, you know, like, sorry, it's not, that's not a three day week anymore. And like, you, yeah. You, oh, you think this is boring? Too bad. Like, why do, why do we in society now get so, are we so surprised when people need to change jobs every year or they get sick of this? They just can't handle the mundane. Oh, this. And there's always these fancy words. I need a better work-life balance or you know, we hear these things from us millennials, but it's like a lot of that's a product of just uh, really, sh- they, they did not have the just grit and grind to some degree of, of like their academic experience growing up. 
because I, I for me like high school was still to this day high school maybe like my first two years of college those were the hardest years of my entire life from a from a work volume standpoint what I was carrying and trying to do every single day between managing sports music and academics it's like it, it was <laughs> it's harder than it was harder I and I'm not it was but it was harder than being like a dad with kids and a job and hobbies now it has prepared me for what is a much more important calling, which I will say is being a dad, you know, like the, the consequences of dropping the ball when you're 16, uh, might mean you play a bad game against Fargo South and you, you can't drop the ball when you're a dad and you've got kids depending on you and you're trying to, to raise them up in the way they should go. So I get that. I'm not saying one's more important. But like the that that was so valuable for me to like have to grind out high school with all of those things, so that I was ready for the real world. And I feel like we're missing that sometimes. But anyway, getting a little bit um, philosophical here on a Monday after the World Championships. Last bit of news here. I got a break. Um, kind of sad. Just found out today that U.S. Ski and Snowboard is having their own broadcasters taking us through the rest of the World Cup. So um, I will not be doing any World Cup broadcasts here for the rest of the year. And it's a, it's a bummer. You know, I think I brought it up on an earlier show that I had, I had thought that I was going to actually be doing all, a lot of the ones in Worlds. And then, of course, several here in the spring, the last three weekends. And so I think, you know, the hardest thing for me, obviously, I think was just the planning side. I had kind of arranged with worship team leading at church, you know, hey, I'm not going to be as available these weekends. Obviously, my own training and racing kind of got blown up a little bit. Um, and I had set some things aside for that. So that's the part that kind of bites a little bit. It's in some ways then a, a relief, I guess, that I won't be investing all of that time to prep and wake up early to do it. Um, but still, obviously, a disappointment. And I think, you know, I was having a good time calling those races I enjoy it, uh, and I hope you did as well. I hope you appreciated those of you listening out there. Appreciated the the work and effort myself and Andrew too. Andrew's a great guy, um, and we know we both have things that we're trying to work on too. So you know, I guess we'll watch and and try and glean some, and maybe we'll be back for next year. Who knows what it'll, what it, it will look like? But yeah, just thought I would let you know. Is uh, I I thought up through this week I was maybe gonna do that. Might have to change the plans. We might have to go full all in on the Snow Mountain Ranch Stampede now, because this Saturday, 50k skate, uh, the 50k classic the next day. I, I think I'm gonna play a little bit by weather though. I I saw some snow falling. If there's like a a heavy snowfall on Saturday, I don't really want a 50k skate through that. It would harken back to my first year ever of cross-country skiing when I came in dead last and they were like trying to close up the course and they didn't even hardly have enough food for me after that. I mean, I finished 11th overall, but I think there was 11 total people in the race and uh, that was hilarious. I mean, my old trusty atomic skate skis that have carried me 10 years without a grind, um, they... They were essentially classic skis on that day. We had about six inches of powder, and I remember at one point stopping and cursing at the sky. I literally stopped, and I started just, like, walking, and I was like, I'm actually getting enough suction to just kick this. Why am I trying to skate? And, I mean, I was a terrible skate skier, too. Um, I, I made I made some amends. Two years later, I came back, and I got third in the skate race. 
and I've won the classic race a couple of times, and that's the big one. You know, I guess it's a big year-end race for me now. Still planning on doing that. Um, I think we will do that no matter what because it's fun. It, even, it's not the same. They've kind of be, they've t- they've treated it like Holman Colon, you know. Like those of you listening here, if you if you race here in Colorado, I know I got a few people who will appreciate this little rant. But yeah, the Snowman Ranch is kind of like Holman Colon now, where back in the day it was two by twenty five k laps, and they just they they shot the gun off, and then they hoped you could make it back because there were some long climbs and you were far away and like bull moose. You never know what what you're going to succumb to, um, and. Now we've got these kind of manicured 12 and a half K loops. And I mean, last year it was, it was so awesome. Like bluebird day, 28 degrees, firm, fast, double track all around Snowmont ranch. I mean, I was having so much fun double pulling that, but it was, it was a double pull. I did not need to do anything differently. And unlike the old courses where you, you kind of needed some grip because I mean, there, there was some prolonged, like maybe 12% grade at the end. I don't know. Maybe I could double pull it now looking back now. And, and it was just because the weather was so rough that I couldn't, I'm not really sure, but Hey, speaking of polls, I should have brought this up. One last thing. Is it time that the, for the Swix track people to rethink it? Someone go back and figure out how many broken poles were Swix triacs. It was a lot. I mean, I think Sophie, David Norris, Rosie Brennan were all on Swix poles. So we know they're feather light. We know they're ultra stiff. And we also do know that they're pretty vulnerable. I think at this point, like at some of these world championships, I wonder like how, how useful it would be to have like, to be unsponsored actually, you know, to have, Hey, I could, I could use this pole for today. I think I should, because the risk is too high. Like lucky poles remind me a lot of the U S ski pole company poles in a lot of ways. And that's what Clabo and Kruger have a lot in the strap, but just the, the durability generally too. They also look a little more robust. I I've no proof of that. I've never held a lucky pole. Um, I did. No, that's a lie. I held, I held some Simon Hester Kruger's lucky poles actually, because I rode in a car with his little brother Espen one, one late Wednesday night in Oslo to some crazy races. One of the greatest memories of all time. I got to ride with Espen Kruger and yeah, he was like, yeah, these are from my brother. He gets like stuff from his brother, which would be so cool. That would be so awesome. Uh, we should have Espen on the show. I see if I could dig him up from social media. Maybe he listens. He might. I don't know. We do have some Norwegian listeners, but Espen, if you're hearing this, shoot me a message. We would love to have you on the show and hear what's going on in Norway. Um, okay. Anyway, that's that's all. I think I covered everything that I wanted to get to here. So hope you enjoyed this show. We'll have to see. We'll do. We'll probably do a Holman Colon recap at some point here. But um, yeah, we'll, we're always open to emails. If you got questions, comments, we'd love to hear from you. Um, you can visit cedarskier.com. You can shoot me an email at cedarskier at gmail.com. You can look me up on Facebook or Instagram. I don't have many friends. Algorithms aren't going to be in your favor, but work at it. It's worth it. Maybe I don't know. Uh, otherwise, hey, get out there. If we got some great pieces of winter left. It's time to start piling on those hours right now. Start training for the Berkey now. Okay. Um, Anyway, keep on striving. Keep on skiing.